I want to just share a little bit of exciting stuff going on at the story before I get into the heart of today's message. And you were given these big uh, brochure-looking things when you came in uh, that say Play Your Part 2020 on them. Every October, we um, prepare for the year ahead. We think that God's really called us to be good stewards, good planners, um, to be strategic about how we allocate the resources that we're um, blessed with here at the story. And we're taking a pretty giant leap of faith in 2020 as we've been planning for this launch of a second campus in the Timber Grove area of Houston, it is upon us. I'll make another announcement about that in just a moment. But that has implications for um, the year ahead. And this is one of those times where it's really like all hands on deck kind of a deal. And I know it's, we're not always real comfortable with financial commitments and stuff like that. Like I won't even join a gym anymore. I got burned at one time. And so I understand. However, I hope you understand the partnership we have here at The Story and how this really does function like a family and we're all in together because our lives have been changed by the grace of God here. And we want the same for many, many more lives. And so it takes... All of us investing, no matter the amount or how many zeros there are in your pledge, I don't care. What really sets my heart on fire is seeing the pledges come in because what it means is you get it. You get the need for all of us to function as one body together, and we all have a role to play, a part to play in it, and it really warms my heart to see those pledges come in. Now, if you're new to church or if you don't know what I'm talking about with a pledge, all it means is an estimated um, amount of support for the coming year. For 2020, what you anticipate being um, able to invest or willing to invest in the stories ministries. You can tell on the back of this, we're taking some pretty big leaps uh, with that budget number, 3.4 million in 2020. All right, so this year was around 2 million, and next year, our fifth year will be 3.4 million. The big jump there has to do with building out the second campus, like physically building it out. Um, I cannot yet share with you where we're going to be, our permanent home. We're this close to having the the lease signed, but I've been told not to say anything about it or I'll jinx it or something. So I'm not going to say it, but maybe soon I'll be able to say it. You're going to be so excited. It's really, really cool where we're going to be. Um, and, uh, and so we've got to invest in that. So hopefully, uh, hopefully you can uh, help us do that. There's three ways to do this. And uh, I guess I'll break this down by where you're at in terms of uh, church life. How about that? So if you're old school church kid, like you've been in church your whole life, this is for you. <laughs> this is a pledge card and you know exactly what to do with this. All right. So you fill this out and you can send this in with the envelope that you were given or just put it in one of the um, boxes on the walls, the offering boxes. That's cool. If you're like a Gen X kid and you're tech savvy, but you don't really care that much to try too hard. You know, like I'm Gen X, like, yeah, whatever, man. It's whatever, it's a place in Nirvana. Like, if that's you, then you can use the, the link. Like, get on your dial-up connection, Gen X, and use the link for the story.pledge, and that's an easy way to do it. And then if you're one of those millennials everybody hates because you're so smart, you can do the um, pledge by text. Right here, you can just text this number, Confidentially, anonymously, you can text um, just your name and the, uh, the total amount of your 2020 um, expected giving um, so that we can plan well. That's what this is about, is being able to set priorities. We've got to have a budget, just like any family or any company, we're going to have a budget. And this helps us set that budget officially and know, know what, we, um, what we've got coming, all right? So, sound good? Y'all help us out with that, all right? This month, we can get those in. I really, really appreciate it, and God's going to keep doing some really good things. Along those lines, 
The biggest part of that bump in the budget has to do with that second campus. I've got a really exciting announcement. It's not the building yet, but we're close, and the, the, the announcement I'm going to make has to do with the first official worship service of the Stories Timber Grove campus, November 17th, 10 a.m. at the Eureka Heights Brewery. <laughs> That's a Sunday morning. I know. No one's surprised anymore that we're having <laughs> worship in a brewery. Whatever. I'll explain more in a minute. So, 10 a.m., Sunday morning. Uh, it is kid-friendly at 10 a.m. on Sunday morning. At, at, uh, so families, y'all bring them. We got, um, we're going to have a temporary setup. It's going to feel like the story. It's going to feel great. I'm going to be preaching there live that day. Um, we'll have all our regular services here as well, and it's going to be a great celebration. So even if like, you're not going to probably be calling the Timber Grove campus your home, but you want to go and like, support Timber Grove and, and uh, help us um, you know, get a good energy in the room and just kind of see what it's like, y'all come on over and then you can stick around Eureka Heights for brunch and all that. This is not a lie. Uh, in the lease with Eureka Heights, they're giving us, was it 20 or 50, Kale? Uh, yeah, 20. 20 uh, drink tokens every week. <laughs> I don't know why that's in the, t- the contract. <laughs> we didn't ask for it. We prayed for it, we didn't ask for it. And then it happened. <laughs> so... Y'all come on and help us set up chairs and you'll get those tokens. <laughs> all right. So November 17th, not all of you, kids. <laughs> November 17th, 10 a.m., Eureka Heights Brewery, um, the first service. And then once a month, we'll be worshiping in Timber Grove. Once a month until the building's ready. All right? That makes sense? So once a month, we'll just kind of be ramping up. Um, to, and when the building's ready, we'll go to weekly worship. All good? Y'all excited? Really cool. All right. Excellent. Yeah, thank you for that. She's, she's, she applauded. So, thank you, Lauren. Um, so, I, I also forgot to welcome everybody joining us online. Thank you all for being here as well. Thanks for enduring my little spiel, and hopefully you're still tuning in from Colorado and Bangladesh and wherever you are today. So, thank you. Um, so, listen, um, we, we're going to talk, uh, we're going to continue talking about leadership today, and what's been on my mind lately is we've been getting ready to announce these Timber Grove, um, you know, developments. It's just how long this has taken to lead from the beginning to now. It's been two years since we first started talking about this idea. Two years. I feel like I was a lot younger than two years younger back then. Like, I feel like I've aged more than two years in these two years because, I don't know, back then I thought this was going to be really easy. You know what I thought? I, I, I remember thinking, let's just start a second campus. Like, the Baptists do it all the time in this town. <laughs> How hard could it be if Baptists do it? <laughs> right? <laughs> Just kidding, Baptists. Uh, so, uh, turns out it's pretty hard. It's pretty hard. Because there are so many details to figure out to do this well, right? You can't just go and set up shop and, and, and just do it. Like, you got to figure out a bunch of stuff. At least we felt like we had to. Had to find the right person to lead it, and God sent us Kale, and Kale's great campus director, soon to be campus pastor or second campus, and uh, God answered that prayer. But that was one of the sort of hurdles we had to face. We had to find the right staff to support it. We had to find enough people to be a part of it. We had to find enough money. We're still doing that part to make sure we can fund it. We had to find the right building. We had to be in the right neighborhood. We were already drawing people from. There were so many steps along the way, I didn't expect it to be this difficult, and I definitely didn't expect to be met with the kind of, I'll say, emotional and logistical opposition that we faced over the last two years from then until now. 
And you know, sometimes when you're trying to, to lead and change and do something different, like you're, you're met with adversity, you're met with unexpected pushback, and, and there's different kinds of adversity and pushback, right? I don't want you to hear me saying throughout the rest of this sermon as I talk about opposition, I don't want you to hear me saying that everybody who opposes you and your big ideas is wrong and you're right. <laughs> There's such a thing as constructive criticism, and we've had a lot of that over the last two years, and I'm grateful for it. Now, I wasn't as grateful for it when I got it, but I'm grateful for it now, dang it, and it was good stuff. It's like, are we thinking too small here, Eric? Are we ready to do this, Eric? Do we have the people? Do we have the numbers? Is this the model that we want? Is this the neighborhood that we want? Is this the right time? Like, all that stuff made us better, made us stronger, made me a better leader. That's constructive criticism, and I'm grateful for it. You need to know the difference between constructive criticism and the kind of disruptive, deceptive distraction that toxic opposition brings. Okay, there's such a thing as toxic opposition. And you need to know this because any time in your life that you're going to do something that's worthwhile, you're going to be met with that kind of opposition. It's going to happen. And so this kind of opposition comes at you from really unexpected places, like the calls coming from within the house, like in the horror movies, you know, like, because a lot of this opposition happens in your own head, like between your ears, all the fear, all the doubt, I can't do it, I'm not the one, this isn't the right time, I'm not the right leader. All those kinds of doubts that just, they, they can threaten the whole operation. And I didn't expect to have those kind of battles. I also didn't expect and this is going to be a little awkward, but if you know me, you know how well I do awkward. I'm great at it. And so settle in. It'll just be a minute. I didn't expect to hear from other churches in the area, not right in the neighborhood, but like in the general metropolitan area around the place where we're going. And they would call and, and they would accuse us of wanting to go into their territory and steal their members. I didn't see that one coming. I'll be honest, that one stung a little bit. I didn't realize that this wasn't the kingdom of heaven we're talking about, that this was Green's Point or something with the bloods and the crypts or something. Like, I didn't realize heaven's going to be gang territory. Like, I didn't know. I didn't know that. And, you know, I had to fight the urge really hard to be smart aleck and just say, are your members non-religious Houstonians? That's who we're going. If they're non-religious, what does that say about your church? You know, or, I didn't say that. I didn't say what I said was, your members are 99 years old and cranky, and I don't want them. I didn't say that either, but I, I thought it. I'm a Christian. I don't say things like that. <laughs> I'm just kidding. All right, so y'all don't judge me. Judge me too hard. But I just didn't see that coming, and it's interesting to me that sometimes the hardest pushback comes from unexpected places. And that's been true for us, and it's going to be true for you wherever and however and whoever you lead. Okay? So um, anytime, and this is what I think has really helped us to push through the adversity and helped us to keep the faith and keep pushing forward, is the knowledge that anytime you're doing something that's worth it, it hurts. Anytime you're doing something that's going to make a difference, it's going to leave a scar. If you want to make your mark, get ready for the scar. Like, if you're not 
coming away wounded, then you're not playing the game hard enough. If you're never afraid, you're not walking by faith. You're playing it safe, right? And so anytime that we're really putting our necks out there and really putting our chips on the table, like, like it's time, let's go, like it's going to feel like a risk. And, and risk is going to come with the occasional loss, the occasional you know, hurt, the occasional setback. And if you're not experiencing any of that, then I might suggest gently to you as your friend and pastor that maybe you're not risking enough. Maybe you're not trusting God enough because good leadership will always lead to a struggle. Good leadership always leads to hardship because there are forces at work in the world that I can't explain that do not want to see the will of God in all of its awesome wonder done on earth as it is in heaven. And so um, that's kind of what we're going to be talking about today in the vein of um, leadership. We've been talking about leadership for five weeks, and um, my whole premise here is that you are leading. Now, uh, whether or not you're a pastor or a CEO, or what, it doesn't matter what your title or job or uh, degree or whatever it is, you're leading because leadership is just influence, and you have influence in someone's life. And the people that you have influence with, you probably love these people. You probably want genuinely what's best for them. But you have to weigh in your mind every day the competing interests of being liked by them and leading them well. Because if you're leading them well, if you're leading them someplace good, if you're leading them, I pray, you're leading them to Jesus, then you're going to be faced with real opposition. You're going to be faced with setbacks, and you're going to question yourself. Some of those calls will come from inside the house. You'll wonder if you have what it takes. You'll be afraid. You'll be scared. You'll you'll wonder if you're the one. Of course. And when that happens, listen, anyone can lead when it's easy. Anyone can lead when it's smooth sailing. Anyone can walk away when it's hard. But what does it mean to stay? to stick, to endure, to push through, to persevere. When times get rough, when it hits the fan, when it falls apart, how do you lead then? That's the question that I'm asking today. And I want you to think of yourself as a leader and to think of yourself in Nehemiah's place as we read more of this man's story from the Old Testament. I love his story and how it reveals just, I think, a master class in leadership. So let's um, look at Nehemiah chapter 4. Uh, start in verse 1. You have study guides if that helps. They have your scriptures on there. If you're a, a straight A student here at the story, you can get your own Bible out and find the book of Nehemiah. I'm sure you already have it. Thumb, you know, your thumb's in it and you're ready to go, right? Amen. Hallelujah. Yeah, okay. All right. Maybe next time. Okay. Let's work. Let's work at it. Okay. Um, okay. Nehemiah 4 verses 1 to 6. So uh, it's going to talk about Sambalat here. And Sambalat, this is the second time he's been mentioned. The first time was in chapter 2. Sambalat is Nehemiah's arch enemy, his nemesis. It's unclear why. We're going to unpack that in a minute. But uh, Sambalat just will not leave Nehemiah alone. When Sambalat heard that we were rebuilding the wall, he became angry and was greatly incensed. He ridiculed the Jews. And those were the people that Nehemiah was leading, um, building the wall of Jerusalem. And in the presence of his associates and the army of Samaria, he said, what are those feeble Jews doing? Will they restore their wall? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they finish in a day? He's not serious. He's joking, right? He's making fun of them because they don't know what they're doing from his perspective. 
Can they bring the stones back to life from those heaps of rubble burned as they are? The walls were burned down and destroyed by Babylon's armies 150 years before. Tobiah, the Ammonite, who was at his side, said, what are they building? Even a fox climbing up on it would break down their wall of stones. Just imagine them all laughing and jeering, right? Having their fun with the Israelites. Hear us. This is, this, is, this is important. This is Nehemiah's pivot. So he had been writing in first person for the reader, for us. We were his audience. And here he shifts and prays to God. Okay? So pay attention here what Nehemiah does. Hear us, our God, for we are despised. Turn their insults back on their own heads. Give them over as plunder in a land of captivity. Do not cover up their guilt or blot out their sins from your sight, for they have thrown insults in the face of the, of the builders. So we rebuilt the wall till all of it reached half of its height, for the people worked with all their heart. People worked with all their heart. Okay, so here's Nehemiah. He's got the weight of the world on his shoulders. This is the most important thing he's ever done. He, the, the future of the city of God, the city of Jerusalem, is hanging in the balance. The people of Jerusalem, they look at him like Gotham residents look at Batman. Like he is their hope. He is their shining beacon, their light, right? He is the one who maybe is the true one God has sent to rebuild the city and refortify our, our home, right? So he's got all these hopes hanging on his heart. And he's just like, can you imagine the stress, the anxiety, the weight he's carrying around with him? He's trying to accomplish this massive undertaking of building a wall. And all he's done his whole life is hold a cup for a living. He was a cup bearer for a living. And now he's building a wall. Like the stress must have been insurmountable. And now on top of all that, as if all that's not enough, you've got this guy, Sambalat, who is insistent on making Nehemiah's life a living hell. I don't know if you have anybody like that in your life. If you don't, just thank your lucky stars every day. But if you don't, if you do, you know what I mean? Like someone who just goes out of their way to make your life harder than it has to be. Some of y'all are nodding like, yeah, I know. <laughs> you know exactly who your Sam Vlad is, all right? This guy, it's not even really clear what his deal is. What is his problem? With Nehemiah, it doesn't say in the text, but we can surmise by reading between the lines a little bit and just do a little digging and kind of start to get it. So Sambalat, a historical figure, not just mentioned in the Bible, mentioned in other sources as well. Uh, Egyptian documents and stuff uh, refer to Sambalat. Same time, same guy, governor of Samaria, all right? So Samaria was a region, is a region, just north of where Jerusalem was, just south of Galilee, where Jesus and his disciples hung out a lot of the time, all right? So the Samaritans were a sect of Judaism that sort of split off from mainline Judaism four to 500 years before this is happening in Nehemiah in 444 BC. So four or 500 years before that, Samaritans split off and the Samaritans believed that they had it right. They were the true heirs of the promises God made to Abraham and that the other mainline Jews, that they were wrong. They, they, had, they had gone wrong at some point along the line, the way, and, and that they, the Samaritans, had the, the right faith, the right religion, the right practice. And so, with Jerusalem in ruins for 150 years, and no leadership in sight, if you can imagine being in Sambalat's shoes, he's probably the one who he thought should have been called upon to rebuild Jerusalem. Sembalat has all the markings, he bears all the qualities of an insecure man and a jealous person 
And if you've ever tried to love an insecure, jealous person, you know how toxic that can get. Watch out, man. <laughs> insecure people are the worst. <laughs> and I've been there. The reason it sucks to be insecure, to try to love someone who's insecure, is because nothing's ever your fault when you're insecure. You're always blaming everyone else for your problems. You're never looking within. You're never trying to get better. You're always just toxic and angry and mean. And, but you, you try and look like you're strong and proud on the outside, and inside you're just a mess. That's the kind of person Sembalat appears to be. He has no good reason to oppose Nehemiah this way, but he does. And so then Nehemiah has a choice to make. What does he do? He's got all these people he's leading, just like you do, to some extent. What does he do when faced with this insulting, inconvenient opposition, this threat from the outside? He takes it right to God, right? He prays about it, right? And that, to people that are, uh, I would say, eye-rolling churchgoers, you skeptical folks out there who just barely hang on with church because your girlfriend brings you or whatever, you're like, of course he prayed, and the preacher's gonna tell me to pray. Can we just go home now and watch the Texans lose to the Chiefs? Like, that's fine, let's go. Like, you know what I mean? Like, that's probably what some of you are thinking. Of course he prayed, he's in the Bible, Bible guys pray. But he didn't have to pray, it's not a script. This man who lived in history, who had a real enemy, who had a real task, a real mission, he was really risking something to really do something different. He really had choices. Listen, he could have gone after Sembalat. He could have met Sembalat's obscenities and insults with obscenities and insults of his own. He could have gone toe to toe with him. But what then? If he had responded, like a lot of us probably would, especially guys, we got to watch our temper sometime, guys. If he had responded in a hot-headed way, what happens then? You know, it's like the way I used to drive back in the day, you know, like, um, like yesterday. It was yesterday. On, <laughs> it's true. So you could ask Gio. She just... Gio must have the hardest time listening to my sermons because she knows. She knows everything. And it was yesterday, I was driving down Shepherd. Somebody tries to cut me off. I don't let them. They get mad. They tailgate me, and I slow down. <laughs> yeah. How you like me now? How does, that, how does that end? Like, best case scenario, I look like an idiot. I, I look like no better than that guy. And, you know... I get to the next red light faster than he does. <laughs> Worst case scenario, I get arrested or killed or something. And, you know, I still look like an idiot. And so there's no good outcome with that. It's just emotionally charged, you know, impulse. Nehemiah could have res responded to Sambalat that way. He could have gotten angry. But he didn't. He could have gone the other way as well, by the way. I mean, he could have gotten passive aggressive. And some of y'all do this. Like, if you're threatened or somebody pushes your buttons, you just act like you're impervious to it and you're above it and it didn't really happen and they don't really matter and you're not really hurt by it and <laughs> you just sweep it under the rug. Like it's not even, the capacity of some of y'all sweeping stuff under the rug, it's really astounding. It's, if it was an Olympic sport, like some of y'all could compete like in this really, like this is the, our, me too, our ability to self-deceive is incredible. Oh, nothing's really wrong. They didn't really say anything. It doesn't really matter. It doesn't really hurt me. Hey, it's a threat. He's got an army up there. 
And so what if, he had, what if Nehemiah had responded that way? He would have lost the confidence of the people following him. He would not have been a reliable leader. He would have lost his integrity um, in his effort to make things seem okay all the time. You know, it's not always smooth sailing. And when it's not, you better be honest with people that you're leading. So Nehemiah doesn't get hot-headed and angry and go toe-to-toe with Sembalat. And he doesn't pull back and be a coward and sweep it under the rug either. He prays to God. He takes all of his fear, all of his anxiety straight to God. He transcends the conflict. Instead of going right at it, instead of running away from it, he transcends it vertically. And not only does he pray to God, transcending the conflict, he takes everyone else with him. He doesn't just go into his room and pray privately for the people that he's leading. He prays with them. He invites them into it. We know this because he says, hear us, our God. You don't say that when you're praying alone. Nehemiah has invited the community he's leading into the prayer with him. And this is a powerful, I think, masterclass in leadership because praying for your people is one thing. It's a good thing. But praying with them is a whole different thing that is much more effective and powerful. And if you ever transition in your leadership from praying for people to praying with them, no matter who you're leading, whether it's a classroom or a company or a family, marriage, a handful of friends, whoever you're leading, if you ever get to the place in your leadership where there's so much trust, you pray together. You invite them to pray with you. Not only, it's not about them seeing you as like holier than thou. Look at our leader, he's praying. Wow. It's not that. And it's not just that you're teaching them how to pray, although that might be the case. What it is is you're inviting them into your intimate connection, your conversation with God, and they are privy to the prayers you're praying on their behalf. It's power. I have often said about marriage, there's nothing more intimate in marriage than praying together. People think that it's intimacy, the other thing. Real intimacy is praying together. That's powerful because it builds trust and it helps people that you're leading to know that you're not the only one they're depending on. And that's important because you're going to have bad days. You're going to make mistakes. You're going to make bad decisions. You're going to get tired, burned out. You're going to go on vacation, whatever. And when they are invited into your intimate connection with God, they know there's a greater hand on the wheel than just yours. And it gives them a greater sense of confidence. So think about the people you're leading. Think about your own life and how you're using your influence. You don't have to use it. It's a choice. You don't have to use it well. That's a choice, too. I want you to know that if you use it well, that there will be struggle, there will be trial, and when the trial comes, you'll have a choice to make how to respond. Will you be a hothead and go right at the people threatening you or the, the, or the resistance? Or will you run away as a coward and pretend like it's not there? Or will you go vertical and transcend it? There's a couple here at the story that courageously chose to share their story with us in the video you're about to see. And this is a five-minute video, and I am so grateful. What you're going to hear in this video is probably unlike anything you've ever heard anyone say in church before. 
And uh, the point of sharing it is not to be sensationalist, but to be honest and vulnerable. And we've believed since we've, since we started at the story that honesty and vulnerability take walls down and open us up to be honest and vulnerable ourselves. So what I want you to hear in Josh and Efshin's story are the choices they had to make as leaders when adversity struck. And listen for the choices that they made, and then toward the middle of the video, you'll hear Afshin's choice and the results of her choice. And toward the end of the video, you'll hear Josh's choice and the results of his. I want you to kind of lean in and listen to the leadership lesson we learned from Josh and Afshin's story. I probably became an atheist when I was seven years old. I grew up in a house of a lot of science, but it was a Muslim home, and I've always been a skeptic. I kind of wore my atheism as a badge of honor, like it made me smarter than other people. I was just an awful sinner. <laughs> I mean, completely lost. I had grown up in the church and was essentially turned out from that crowd right around college. And at that time, I began a walk of rebellion. And then I met Evsheen in law school. She was an atheist. So religion and Christianity, if they were discussed, they were discussed negatively. About three years ago, we were struggling in our marriage and I was just seeking some comfort and seeking answers. And actually, Josh's parents are very faithful Christians. They had given me scriptures to read. And so um, I started reading a book of scriptures uh, one evening when I was feeling a lot of anxiety. And I just suddenly knew. And I went from being a complete atheist to a complete believer in the span of a second. And then I just had to figure out where to go from there. So I went from zero faith to 100% and then had to reconcile years of skepticism. I was kind of privately seeking a church home. And so I went to a few places, didn't feel particularly comfortable. And I happened to have lunch one day with a colleague. We started talking about her son's baseball coach and she said, He's a pastor and he used to be an atheist. How crazy is that? His name is Eric Huffman. So I looked him up and we went the next Sunday because I was so intrigued. When I started coming to the story, I also met with Pastor Gio privately and um, I told her where my marriage was and she was right there with me in prayer. She created a community of prayer warriors for me and made a really big difference in, in my life. At some point that fall after your baptism, I just started praying to myself in the car. I don't know exactly why. I always believed in Jesus. I just didn't care enough to follow him which is, I guess, kind of hard to say now. So I just started to pray. Not my will, but thine be done. In the span of about a month, there was a complete change in me, and I was convicted, accepted Jesus again, and 
said, you're going to be the Lord and Savior of my life. And he saved my life. My stepping out of faith included at that time confessing everything that needed to be confessed. If you know anything about our family, you're going to know the worst sin I committed. But I can't tell you how thankful I am that my testimony includes <laughs> the incredible gift that is our son, Caleb. I don't know how anyone could get through tragedy and trial and, and difficult times without the, the grace that God provides us and that He just pours out over us. And I needed to receive the grace in order to be able to give the grace. And I'm just so thankful. I think the beauty of the story is the community meets you where you are. And so it's okay to be skeptical and it's okay to ask questions. I think one of the things that can drive people away from a community and certainly from church is judgment and gossip. And at the story, the community creates a space where people confess who they've been and who Jesus saved them from being. And it's those things that give power to the gospel. Houston needs a place that is the story to do this, to be a place where stories like this can grow and develop so that they can have the full measure that is the miracle of Jesus' love. Our story does not happen absent Jesus. God's pretty good. I thank God for Josh and Afshin and their courage to share that story. Uh, our story doesn't happen absent Jesus. Let me tell you what that means. Practically speaking, when Josh broke Afshin's heart and he broke their marriage covenant, Afshin found out about it. She had options and no one would have blamed her for choosing any of the other options. She could have gotten really angry and upset and she could have stayed angry at him for the rest of her life. She could have hated him and made an enemy out of him. No one would have blamed her for that. She could have withdrawn emotionally and kind of swept it under the rug and never told a soul about any of this stuff happening and they could continue to live their life and go to parties and maybe go to church at Christmas Eve or whatever and look happy and I'm okay, are you okay? Okay, like let's have a drink. Like that's, they could have done that and quietly resented each other for the rest of their lives. They didn't go straight at the problem. She didn't go straight at the problem in anger. She didn't retreat in cowardice. She went vertical and straight to Jesus with it. And later in the video, Josh said, at one point, I was convicted. Ooh, convicted is not fun. That's hard. You ever been convicted of anything? <laughs> a crime? Uh, um, uh, sin? It's, it hurts to get convicted. And when the Holy Spirit convicted Josh, he could have responded in any of the same ways we talked about before, shaking his fist at heaven. Forget you, God. I'm okay as I am. 
or walking away like a coward going, that was just a feeling, that was a phase, that wasn't real, I'm fine. But instead he took his conviction straight to Jesus, repenting of the things he had done. He went vertical. Listen, when we look at Jesus, and particularly his most important, best known sermon, the Sermon on the Mount that starts with the Beatitudes, right? Matthew 5 to 7, and Jesus starts with all the blessed R's, right? He's blessed R, blessed R. That's not how he said it. You're aware, right? Jesus was not a character in a Jane Austen novel, like, blessed R. That's not how he talked, right? And that's how you, you never, ever say the word blessed, all right? He said, you're blessed when you're persecuted. You're blessed when they insult you. You're blessed when they revile you. You're blessed when all you hear is no, when you're just rejected, when you're all alone, when they hurt you. You're blessed when they persecute you in my name. And blessed means fortunate. Fortunate means lucky. What he's saying is when the struggle comes, lucky you. You're lucky when it's tough. Your opposition is an opportunity. And again, it's not because he wants us to hurt. It's because when we're hurting, we're open to him. Finally, all the pretense goes away. We stop faking. Life gets real. I need you, Jesus. That's when he shows up. That's when he does his best work is when it's hitting the fan and we don't know which way is up. We don't know if we have what it takes. That's when Jesus works. And that is what Afshin and Josh found out. Nehemiah, when he faced his opposition, listen, he could have folded and no one would have blamed him. He could have walked away and no one would have blamed him, but he embraced his opposition as an opportunity. When it comes to leading the people you love, maybe you're sitting with them right now. Every day matters and every choice matters. I encourage you not to be nonchalant or casual about this. Invest. Because whether you're leading a company, a classroom, a family, or some friends, or whether we're leading a church together into this brave new world of multi-site church where everything seems a little bit harder, we're going to face some struggles if we're doing anything really worthwhile. And when the struggles come, what will you do? Don't back down. Don't lash out. Don't give up. Press on persevere, push through. I'm going to end with this passage that Paul wrote to first Christians who were suffering way worse than any of us have suffered for being Christians in the city of Rome. The letter called Romans chapter 5 verses 3 to 5. He says, therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through Jesus, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we we being poor, we being empty, we being persecuted, we being reviled. We Christians boast in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings because we know that, I would like it if y'all would read this with me, please. I want to hear your voices. We know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, and character, hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Whatever opposition you face when doing something important is not merely opposition, it's an opportunity to grow. 
to trust him more and to lead those you're leading to do the same. Praise God for the struggle. Let's pray. God, this is a, a, it's a hard thing to do, to thank you. When times are hard and when it's not easy and when every answer is no, God, sometimes uh, we would just rather have smooth sailing, no resistance, no hardship. Remind us, Lord, in your wisdom, remind us that no one ever grew to be better leaders in smooth sailing in easy times. But it's in the struggle and the challenge and the trial, resistance and hardship that we grow to become the people you created us to be. People that leave a mark, that leave an impact on this world. God, there are people's lives that we're leading, hanging in the balance as we are called to lead them to you. Give us courage, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen.